Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, they've gone from the sandal of choice for the distinctly unfashionable and a sign of counterculture to the New York Stock Exchange. The German company Birkenstock had its initial public offering this week. So will it be a comfy fit for investors? And how did the company go from hippie to hip in just a few decades? Canada started airlifting citizens and permanent residents out of Israel today. The first military flight leaving Tel Aviv for Greece with two more set for tomorrow. We speak to one Canadian in southern Israel, still waiting to hear if and when he'll be able to leave. As birds migrate south for the winter, more than a thousand have been killed, striking just one Chicago building in just one day last week. So what more can be done to prevent those deadly window strikes by birds? And why aren't we doing it? But first, it was something right out of a heist movie. $20 million worth of gold bars and $2 million in cash were stolen from a secure storage facility at Toronto's Pearson Airport in April. New details in a lawsuit filed by Brinks against Air Canada holding the airline responsible for the loss provides new details about what happened. And it claims the theft was as simple as presenting fraudulent documentation and taking away the loot. But let's start tonight closer to home, and we're going to begin with new developments in a real-life caper. The shock heist of $20 million in gold bars, along with about $2 million U.S. in cash from a cargo facility at Toronto's Pearson Airport in April. Now, there's been no new information, really, about this case since it happened. Here is uh, police speaking about it back then. What I can say is that the container contained a high-value shipment. It did contain gold, but was not exclusive to gold and contained other items of monetary value. The total worth estimated at this time in our investigation for the property is estimated at just over $20 million. Right. So we now believe it's about $20 million in gold and about $2 million U.S. in cash. That is a lot. And we don't know what happened, really. It's one of the biggest thefts, if not the biggest heist in Canadian history. Now, Brinks, you'll know them, uh, Incorporated, is now suing Air Canada over the theft, alleging that the airline was negligent in the way it handled the cargo. Now, according to a statement of claim, and this is just a statement of claim, the plaintiff, Brinks, alleges that the theft was as simple as someone walking into the cargo facility, showing false documentation, a way bill, uh, and walking out, or not walking out, but moved, going away, leaving with the shipment. Brinks says the waybill was a copy of one tied to an unrelated shipment and says the airline took the waybill without verifying its authenticity in any way. The loan person then left with the golden cash worth about 22, more than $22 million. Now, joining me now is freelance journalist Glenn McGregor. He was the first to report on the lawsuit and the details. You can find him on Substack at a few tasteful snaps it's called. And Glenn joins me now. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben, for having me. This has been quite the mystery since it happened, because just to put it back into perspective, this was an awful lot of money, an awful lot of gold and money. Incredible amount. I mean, over $20 million Canadian in gold and then something on the order of $2 million additionally U.S. dollars in currency. And this apparently happens a lot that money like and gold get gets moved around the world on a constant basis. And this lawsuit is giving us a little bit of insight into how that works and how these uh, transport or cargo shipments are arranged 
uh, coordinated and supposed to be secured. But of course, in this case, uh, it, at least according to Brinks, uh, it was not properly secured and it went missing, as we know. And at the yeah. time, when it happened back in April, it was an enormous mystery because the police didn't seem to have any clues. They held a press conference at the time announcing what they thought had happened, but they didn't have any of the details of who the suspects were or how the crime was committed. And of course, gold heists are kind of sexy. I mean, this is the stuff out of yeah. Hollywood movies. And we automatically think of, you know, guys with balaclavas and AK-47s bursting into a place or, or robbing an armored truck. I'm thinking of that movie Heist uh, or um, possibly, you know, burglars kind of cutting a hole in the roof and descending on ropes in order to yeah. get into the vicinity. Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. You know, like, that's yeah. what you and, think and- of. It, it's something that, that when I realized, when I wrote this story, I realized that there's like a enormous public interest in it because of that trope, that sort of th- this this mystique that we've attached to gold thefts uh, that seems to be kind of enduring. Yeah, twenty million dollars in gold bars is an awful lot of money. I don't think most of us ever knew that we, if we were flying commercial, you know, say an Air Canada flight, there might be twenty million dollars worth of gold bars sitting beneath us in cargo. It's pretty. That in itself was was interesting to me. I think there's a fascinating follow-up to the story about all the stuff that goes on a commercial airplane in the belly of the plane beneath the passengers. So this was an Air Canada flight, a regular flight, uh, goes daily from Zurich, Switzerland to Toronto. Uh, And, you know, uh, it sounds like from the the way it's described in the statement of claim that this is a regular occurrence, that these things, this is not some exceptional, unusual event that these things happen often. I mean, I've heard stories also about, you know, when you fly on a, on a commercial flight, quite often there are uh, bodies of, yeah. of deceased people uh, on the airplane as well. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of one of these these things we don't know a lot about, and we always assume it's just our Samsonite and American tourister bags getting chucked in there. Uh, but apparently there's also a lot of other stuff uh, that flies along with us that we never know about. You mentioned, of course, uh, that that the facts. Now that you've seen the facts, at least as the statement of claim puts out uh, by Brinks, to, to to remind listeners, Brinks is suing Air Canada because I gather they were responsible for this stuff. Uh, this wasn't on a huge pallet. This was sort of a, a desk sized box. And forget Ocean's Eleven and elaborate schemes and people descending on ropes in the middle of the night. This sounds like they basically walked in and said, "Hey, that's ours," and they said, "Yeah, okay." And is is that what happened? At least according to the statement of claim, according to Brinks. And let's let's yeah. just be clear: Air Canada yes. has not had an opportunity to file a defense and isn't commenting on this because it is before the courts, and that's a fairly standard uh, response. But I'll tell you what Brinks alleges is that this shipment was unloaded uh, from the belly of the aircraft and taken to a secure facility using something called AC Secure. So this is Air Canada's special cargo service for dealing with high value cargos. And they take it to a facility uh, at the Toronto airport. And according to Brinks, Air Canada didn't properly secure that facility and that someone, the thief uh, or thieves, there's only one individual referred to in the documents, walks in there and present and isn't challenged and then goes to whomever and gives them a fraudulent waybill. And a waybill is basically just a document saying this is, shipment is mine and and I'm I'm here to collect it. And it goes unchallenged and the person according to the lawsuit just simply walks out with it or well at least we assume they would have loaded it onto some kind of a truck or a minivan or something like that because you know 400 kilograms of gold 
you're not putting that in the back of a Honda Civic, right? You, you gotta, <laughs> you're going to have to have some way of transporting that. Uh, and then I guess they just drive off. And, you know, there are still now police have made no arrests in this case, and they haven't indicated they have any any suspects or, or any inclination who did this. So it is, uh, at this point, an unsolved crime. Brinks says that Air Canada should be on the hook for this. Brinks was hired by a gold refining company and also a Swiss bank to carry this cargo, and they are financially responsible for that. Uh But they are saying that Air Canada blew it because they didn't follow their own protocols, and therefore they should pay for them using something called the Montreal Convention. And this is an international treaty that governs all international airlines. Uh, it, it deals with you know who who is held financially responsible, uh, for example, if a plane crashes or if there's a hijacking or something else goes wrong, or if your luggage gets lost. And so when people apply to Air Canada to get back luggage that they've lost or to any other airline to, to, to get compensated for luggage that's gone missing, there is a formula for compensation that it's set out uh, in the Montreal Convention these things called special drawing rights, kind of just sort of a, a, a way of kind of an international currency leveler so that everybody kind of gets the same amount of compensation regardless of where you live. Uh, but uh, I don't think it was necessarily intended to deal with incredibly high value cargo uh, like the one we're talking about here. Just a reminder, because I, I, I didn't ask you this, where was it headed? I think the cash was headed to Vancouver, I think, and I forget about the gold, where it was headed. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the cash was headed to Vancouver and the gold was headed to the TD Bank. I, I presume this is some kind of mechanism they use when they transfer large amounts of money that gold gets moved around. I mean, we've, we've all heard stories about the Federal Reserve in the United States moving uh, pallets full of gold from one side of the room to the other past the dividing line, which somehow sort of changes its legal status or ownership. So I think this might be something along the same lines. Uh, TD hasn't said anything about this uh, either. Uh, so yeah, it, but it but it is still you know an, an unsolved mystery and and a, a tremendous tremendously compelling one about uh, at that. I mean, I'd love to hear uh, about more detail from how this person just walked into this facility at Toronto's Pearson Airport, this supposedly secure cargo facility. You know, there's an old uh, adage, and, and and some journalists would buy by it that you can get pretty much into anywhere if you carry a clipboard with you uh, or sometimes wear a hard hat and walk with a degree of confidence that no right. one will challenge you. So, you know, it, it's a very boring way of conducting a crime, uh, serving them with a fraudulent waybill, but obviously uh, an effective one. And you, you presumably uh, a certain degree of insider information was required because they would have to know the flight, the shipment number, uh, uh, the, the co- co-signee uh, of the shipment. All those details would have to be known. They'd have to know how to uh, forge the waybill to make it look authentic. It looks like it's something that that people at Air Canada deal with every day. Uh, but at the end of you know, at the end of the day, it, it sounds like the, their key tool here was just boredom, uh, and that people didn't bother to challenge the person because it just seemed all normal to them. Yeah, I guess if this is a regular occurrence and you knew that this was sort of a regular thing that happened, you would you could sort of start to figure out the rhythm of it to some extent. I mean, now I'm speculating, but but you know, and, and you're right, you would have to know how it works because they would have had to the fraudulent way bill as is described in the statement of claim would have had to have been believable enough to not be noticed. And I guess it's not even guaranteed that the people handling it would have known what was in what was in the delivery either. That is quite possible. Although when you see the weight of the thing, I mean, 400 <laughs> kilograms is 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 enormous. I presume it would require a forklift to move. 
uh, at the very least. And I mean, even even just the currency, it's fifty three kilograms of bi- of currency. We, we don't know what you know uh, whether it was U.S. dollars or or, or, or Swiss francs or, or or what it might have been. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was a big big chunk of currency uh, as well my, my my other question about this is the thieves who took it what do they do with it yeah because you know in we have very strict money laundering laws in this country you can't walk into a bank with two million dollars in a currency and just deposit it into your account uh, anything over i believe the threshold is ten thousand dollars gets reported automatically to an agency called fintrack mm. which is designed to prevent uh, money laundering and the use of money in terrorism uh, and then there's the matter of 400 kilograms in gold bars uh, i have no idea how you would possibly turn that into real money that you could use so this is a second component of this. I would presume that the flat feet at the Toronto detectives are working on this. Uh, but, but that's, that, that's another kind of part of this that I, I'm very eager to find out more of. Yeah. That, that case would have weighed about a thousand pounds if you had it all. 450 kilograms is a lot. I, I'm sure you approached obviously Air Canada. They can't talk because this is before the courts. I, I, I anything from the police? They haven't really updated at all since this happened. And this is one of the biggest heists in Canadian history, by the way, at least in terms of value. I mean, this is a huge one and it sort of just vanished from, from the public eye after it happened. Yeah. I, I, I think by dollar value, it is probably the largest heist in history. I mean, Canadian banks don't keep that much currency on hand. So, so even when you have a, you know, a case of the rare cases we get with of bank robberies in Canada, the amounts are usually quite small. There was a, extremely large maple uh, maple syrup heist a few That's years right. ago in Canada, which made international headlines because it was almost just a national joke. Uh, but no, I, I, I don't think we, we've seen anything like, like this uh, on this scale. Um, and yeah, Air Canada is, is not talking about it. The police, if they have any leads, aren't saying either. Uh, that's not unusual in either of those cases because when something is before the courts, they don't, the, the company doesn't want to jeopardize its litigation position by, by commenting publicly. And the police, of course, uh, they don't want to do anything that might impede their investigation if they do have suspects. But obviously they've been talking to Brinks because Brinks had information that they put into this lawsuit that we didn't know about previously. Uh, we didn't know about the fraudulent wave bill. We didn't know about this shadowy thief marching into the secure cargo facility. So um, you would think there would be video cameras in a place like that. You would think, that yeah. Would have, would have access to. Uh, you think they would have, I mean, the, the, the Toronto airport is, is connected to, very close to a bunch of major highways, which all have traffic cameras on them. You'd think the police would be able to, to get license plates and things of that nature uh, there. But uh, so far, no arrests. So looks like the thieves knew what they were doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a script yet. It's not a movie script yet. Walks in with fake waybill and walks out. That's not. That's not going to make for a very long movie, Glenn. Well, it's getting close. It's and, getting lo- close. I mean, I think the fun thing about this story. I mean, you know, someone's a company, big companies out a lot of money here, uh, and, but there doesn't seem to be any victims. There was no violence, mm-hmm. uh, which is good. So it's. I think it's a fun story. People like to speculate, like to think about it. Like to think about how might they might have pulled it off. You know, it's the sort of thing, as I say, it's, 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 it's in movies and television programs all the time, but to see someone actually doing it and doing it successfully and just doing it by kind of exploiting what was obviously a gap in the system. Uh, I, I think it makes it compelling to a lot of people and has piqued their curiosity. And that's why we see so much international interest in this story. Glenn, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben.
it was an unbelievable kill that happened and there were over 900 i think the final total was 961 birds just at mccormick place the most we had had before in a single night was 200 and some that was the situation in chicago a week ago today uh conservationists are sounding the alarm after at least a thousand birds some of them just little tiny tennessee warblers that are do their breeding here in canada they were heading south died after colliding with a single building in the windy windy city uh, mccormick place is the largest convention center in north america it is largely covered in glass it also sits on the shores of Lake Michigan. It all proved a deadly mix for many of these tiny birds as they migrated south uh, to their wintering grounds from Canada. During a 24-hour period last week, it was estimated some 1.5 million birds were in the air over Cook County, which includes Chicago, of course, that according to BirdCast. Uh, poor weather conditions in the previous days, including heat and headwinds, had largely halted migration leading up to Wednesday. And then on Wednesday, they all the things got better and they all left. But the conditions were such that they were flying lower than usual. And again, it was just devastating. Uh, Tennessee warblers, hermit thrush, American woodcocks, other varieties of songbirds. Uh, it's an extreme example of a very common problem in the U.S. and, of course, on this side of the border as well. It's estimated somewhere between 325 million and a billion birds die in North America from collisions with windows every year, including tens of millions here in Canada. And it's not just tall buildings and it doesn't just happen at night because of light. There are many efforts underway to try to make it safer for birds, especially when they're migrating. Joining me now is Brandon Samuels. He's a PhD student in the Department of Biology at Western University in London, Ontario. He also works with the Advanced Facility for Avian Research and studies the relationship between bird vision and window collision risk. Brendan, thank you. Thanks for having me. I was pretty surprised by, I mean, I guess time of year, you know, birds are migrating south, but this story out of Chicago, I mean, in one day they found a thousand that had crashed into a single building. And I think that's just, that's not even the whole picture here because many birds will continue and, and just not make it uh, given their injuries. But w were you surprised by that kind of statistic? It seems so high to me. There was once a time when learning about these incidents would have surprised me. The reality, though, is this is an imminent risk of not a matter of if we're going to have bird collisions during bird migration, but simply where and, and when and, and how many. This kind of mass mortality event where you have a lot of birds dying in short time in a small geographic area, that doesn't happen that frequently, but it is an ever-present risk everywhere. And even though looking at the news and seeing 1,000 birds dead seems like it, in itself a crisis, it actually only represents a, a small fraction of the birds that are being killed by collisions with buildings all over the world, all of the time. And so, yeah, it, it is really jarring to read these headlines and to ask, you know, wh what can we do about this? Yeah, I guess the number that I read was 25 million estimated uh, per year in Canada, a billion perhaps in North America as a whole. What is it? I mean, I, one can understand what's happening, but you've looked into this, the way that birds react with their environment. What's happening when they collide with a building and why are they vulnerable to it at certain in certain situations? 
Generally, what happens when a bird collides with a window is they simply don't recognize a reflection is not an actual tree or a vegetation or an extension of sky. And they make that critical error while moving at high speed and will collide with a window. Um, sometimes they'll crash into glass that appears transparent and they just don't notice that it's there, kind of like people running into a screen door. The majority of collisions are happening during the daytime under daylight. It was once believed that um, most bird collisions were happening at night as a result of light pollution. And while some collisions do happen at night, and in the case of Chicago, it's believed that a lot of those collisions happened at nighttime, the bulk of the problem seems to be during the day. So what we need to do to prevent this uh, is to ensure that glazing on buildings has a visual signal built into the glass so that birds will recognize, oh, this is a physical barrier. I cannot pass through this. And there's now a variety of technologies on the market that provide visual markers in the facade design of a building so that that is safer for birds. Of course, when you have light pollution at night. That is one of the major factors contributing to bird collisions um, in that setting. And so reducing light pollution through lighting design changes, limiting how much light is being cast up into the night sky, turning off lights when they're not needed, closing curtains where you've got high-risk environments like the building in Chicago. Those are all recommended practices. Yeah, it's interesting just to, because when you talk about the different circumstances that it happens, obviously there have been experiments. I know I've read about them in different major cities with the light pollution aspect, with trying to at least reduce the risk at night. But you mentioned, of course, that during the day, that's that's different. Yeah, it's sort of it's it's a complicated distinction to uh, explain to most people. Mm-hmm. Light pollution is really problematic for for birds and for insects and for human health too. I mean there's a, many reasons why we should be concerned about reducing light pollution, but if we're trying to prevent birds from crashing into buildings, in particular windows, uh, we really need to focus on the design of buildings and and the window glass materials that are used and have that be implemented in policy. Some birds, I gather, are more prone than others, too. And we're seeing, I mean, migration. Clearly, uh, Chicago is on a, on a, clearly on a migration path from Canada south. Uh, so you're getting these huge numbers of birds crossing the same territory at the same time, leading to the sort of things that we saw uh, this week. But again, it's it's not it's 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 dramatic. But you, as you pointed out, it's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the problem overall. It really is. And what happened in Chicago is tragic. It's sort of a perfect storm situation where you've got environmental factors like weather, which can contribute to birds kind of congregating in a certain area. Or sometimes weather will reduce visibility and that can lead to birds flying lower uh, and elevating the risk of collisions. The particular structure that these birds collided with is right on the waterfront of one of the Great Lakes. And so birds that are migrating over the water, this is the first thing they're going to encounter when they're exhausted and reaching land. Mm -hmm. And they've got really bright lights coming from the building, huge floor-to-ceiling windows. It's really, like I said, a, a perfect storm situation. And that is the kind of thing that can result in, you know, hundreds to thousands of birds being killed all in one shot. But for a city like Chicago, they're looking at collision deaths throughout the year at much larger numbers happening throughout the city, wherever you've got glass and birds interacting in the environment. You know, we always say that change starts at home, and it did for you, too. As you were doing this PhD, you started to to become more active on campus, too. What did you do? I mean, it's amazing what you've managed to do already just at Western. Uh, What did you start out doing, and what were some of the solutions that were working? Uh, I know there are no sort of massive skyscrapers on the campus, but you started to make some difference with just what was there. 
Yeah, indeed. And I appreciate the call out to starting at home. The very first thing I actually did was to treat my own windows at home. I feed birds in my backyard. I've restored habitat here and I work at my desk. And one day I had a bird bump into my window and I thought, well, that's not right. I can't be studying this and not taking action. So I treated the windows at home. And over the last couple of years, I've had the opportunity to watch birds at my feeder interacting with the window treatment I put up. Um, It's just a small grid of dots applied on the outside of the glass. And what that does is it breaks up the appearance of reflection so that birds, again, recognize that solid barrier. On our university campus, um, I began my PhD by doing building surveys and walking around the various buildings. We're fortunate to have a lot of really nice green space on our campus. There's a lovely river that passes through, um, and we're on a migratory route for a lot of species. And I was shocked by the number of birds that we were finding that had been killed or injured by colliding with windows. And so we assembled this data in a map, and we developed kind of public communications and started a petition And we found allies in the university who recognized that this was really important to our biodiversity on campus, and they invested in retrofitting the worst windows uh, on on those buildings, and also committed to adopting a bird-friendly building design standard for all future construction. As I understand it, our university now has the most bird-safe buildings on its campus of any in the world. We are now actually in the final stages of having this be implemented in municipal bylaw in London so that all future buildings that require site plan approval will have to comply with the same bird safe design standard. Uh, It always begs the question, Brenda, though, why should people care about this? I mean, we put these barriers in the way, but what kind of impact does it have on the bird population when you see that volume of bird deaths per year? There are so many different reasons to care, and I have a lot of conversations with people who might love birds like I do or who might not care so much about birds, but we need to meet people where they're at and convey the value of birds to human society, um, not just for their intrinsic value. Um, Birds are very special to people, but also the, the services that birds provide. Birds that are dying in Ontario, perhaps in your backyard, um, the average building with windows on it, we estimate kills on average about one to 10 birds every year. And folks don't usually realize this is going on. Those birds migrate really far often, and they're providing those services, those functions throughout their migratory ranges. So if you think about it, for example, in many parts of Canada, we've had historic wildfires that have just kind of cleared the landscape of vegetation. And birds are some of the earliest uh, seed dispersing animals to return to those landscapes, and thus they contribute to the regeneration of ecosystems. Birds are really important for pest insect control. We know that with a changing climate, insects that pose conflicts for human health, like mosquitoes or for agricultural production, we are needing to manage those insect populations. And many birds depend on insects. They eat a huge number of insects in their diet. Birds are biohazard control. If you see roadkill on your street, um, you'll notice often that after a few hours, it simply disappears. Well, you can probably thank a turkey vulture for that where I live. So these kinds of services people take for granted, but they're happening in the background all around us, even if we don't see them. I would estimate, and there isn't really great scientific data to back this up, but the average bird that is killed preventably by colliding with a structure, if that bird was allowed to live, you know, for the duration of its lifespan uninterrupted, 
probably over its lifespan, it would provide thousands of dollars worth of services throughout its range, not just in Ontario, but everywhere. And so cumulatively, if you think about, you know, one billion birds being killed every single year in North America by colliding with structures, even though we know that there are ways to prevent that from happening, it's an enormous waste. And ultimately, the costs of doing nothing, we're going to feel in the long run. So, Brendan, I, we talked about starting at home earlier. I know that there are things people can do both within their own physical environments, but you also mentioned, you know, putting pressure on your own elected officials, for instance. Uh, but there seems like there are many solutions here. Some of them would be expensive, no doubt, in, you know, superstructures and such. But there are different ways that one can go about sort of moving the ball on this. Yeah, indeed. So for the average person, I would say... Ask yourself whether you have the capacity to treat your windows where you live at home. So if you own your house, you can treat your windows. It can be really inexpensive. Um, you can hire somebody like a handy person to get up on a ladder. There are products you can put on your window, like the dot tape that I talked about on my mm -hmm. windows. You could even take a paint marker and just draw lines or use regular tape or hang pieces of string. Just need to be careful not to um, leave gaps much wider than a bird between whatever you're putting on the outside of your window. People like to put these birds of prey stickers. You'll slap one or two up on the window. I don't really recommend those. I find they just don't work. So treating windows at home, if, if possible, I recognize that a lot of people don't have the flexibility to treat their windows. What if you live in an apartment building, for example? I think really what we need to do is prioritize where are the highest risk buildings and what can we do to mitigate the risk at those buildings. So if you know of a building in your neighborhood that's got a big wall of glass that's near green space, you know, try documenting what you're finding there. If you just go for a walk and you notice that birds are, are being injured or killed, um, you can upload those data. There's a, a an app called a Global Bird Collision Mapper. I use the smartphone app iNaturalist to collect that data and try speaking with the property owner as well. You know, most people don't want to kill birds, but they're just not aware that this is even a problem or that there are things that can be done. The most economical way to treat a larger set of windows, let's say on a commercial or industrial building, is when those building windows need to be serviced anyway. So all building windows need to be maintained. They need to be washed. Windows don't last forever. They need to be replaced every 20 to 25 years. If you can make the argument that this is worth investing in, they could be adding a bird-friendly treatment on the glass or replacing those windows with an alternative without much additional cost. They have to go ahead and do that anyway. I would say in terms of biggest bang for our buck, we need to start advocating for policy. So currently in Ontario, there's around 16 municipalities that have bird safe design uh, requirements or guidelines in place for site plan control. So what that means is larger uh, buildings that require a site plan, commercial, multifamily, residential, industrial, those buildings can be made to comply with the standard. But there are challenges there. Uh, it doesn't apply to the most common form of building on the landscape, which is the single detached house. Really difficult to enforce, doesn't really touch you know, retrofit opportunities like I just talked about. And so what we really need to do is embed this in the building code, because if we put this standard in the building code, then it would just become, you know, standard. It would be practiced everywhere, you know, no matter what jurisdiction or municipality you're in, the requirements would be kept consistent. And to your point about cost, it does not need to be expensive. If you think about what it costs to build a building nowadays, mm -hmm. the cost of making it safe for birds is it represents a tiny fraction of less than one percent and there are ways to do this that are 
cheaper than others. There's, you know, you can get fancier solutions. If this were to be implemented in policy, the cost would go down right away because all of a sudden there would be this enormous demand. So something that I have been working on is uh, next week, actually, on Wednesday, we will be at Queen's Park at the Ontario legislature to announce the introduction of a bill. This would save millions of birds' lives in Ontario every single year. Um, it would be a huge win for biodiversity. And so if you're interested in supporting this, stay tuned. Yeah. Brendan, uh, congratulations on finding such a great... I mean, I know this is not your life's work, but congratulations on finding something so cool and moving it forward so quickly. Uh, I really appreciate your time tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, happy to share and, and be part of the journey. Let's go to Israel now, because today the first Canadian airlifts, the first Canadian flights carrying Canadians away from Israel uh, began to take off. The first 130 people on it uh, left today for Greece. Two more scheduled for tomorrow. It comes as hundreds of Canadians and permanent residents find themselves in limbo. Not sure if scheduled flights will resume the ones they are supposed to leave on and not sure when they'll be able to board those Canadian military flights to get out. They include more than two dozen people in a B.C. church group that was touring historical sites in Israel when uh, conflict broke out. Paul Olson is the executive pastor at Southridge Fellowship Church in Langley. Here's what he had to say. But they have not heard from the Canadian government, at least at this point, they have not heard anything from the Canadian government about their their time to get out. And at this point, they're still assuming that Air Canada will fly them out on Sunday, the original departure date, but they're uncertain of that at this point. And that's the same situation my next guest finds himself in. Constantine Diskin is in Israel with his wife, visiting family, having arrived on September 30th, due to leave on Monday. They're in a city called Be'er Shiva, about 40 kilometers from the border with Gaza. Air raid sirens sounded Saturday morning as Hamas carried out that horrific attack. They've been trying to find a way home since, contacting the Canadian embassy, but tonight still don't know exactly how or when they'll be able to start that journey back to Canada. Constantine Diskin, uh, Diskin joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, my pleasure, Ben. How are you? How are you and your and your and your family? I know you were over there on vacation and doing some visiting. It, I'm sure it was started off as a pretty straightforward trip, right? Yeah, it uh, it started as a typical uh, vacation into somewhat exotic place for us. Um, even though I do have family that moved here not too long ago, um, so it was kind of two birds with one stone. Uh, visit the family a long overdue visit and uh, visit the country that we've been to Israel in 2018 and we liked it quite a bit and we wanted to repeat the experience. Where were you on on Saturday morning when all this began and and what was that like? Because uh, I think, you know, we know that Israelis are used to sort of, well, not used to that, but used to kind of the the threat, but uh, it felt so different from afar on Saturday morning. What must it have been like to have been there? Yeah, it started at relatively early even for us even though we still were struggling from a bit of a jet lag um it started around 6 40 in the morning the loud sirens went off and obviously we woke up um freaked out a little bit but we you know immediately your western mind goes into well it's it's got to be some kind of a training or you know exercise of some sort uh, we happened to be staying in a room which is a designated security room in the apartment, so we didn't have to really run anywhere, but we had to shut the shutters, and those are heavy iron shutters. And my mom uh, joined us in, in the security room, and we locked the doors, and um, sirens pretty much were going on for about four, four and a half hours. 
um, with um, loud explosions. Iron Dome was uh, essentially working uh, and neutralizing all, all those rockets, but there were lots on the day one. Um, needless to say, our plans for Saturday were completely derailed mm-hmm. and the rest of vacation for that matter. Um, but um, we relatively quickly, we realized that no, it's not, it's not a training, it's not an exercise, it's a real thing. And then news started to roll in, um, some disturbing news, uh, which ultimately, um, I don't know if, if, if they sunk even until now, uh, right. that we're so close, we're like 40 kilometers away from, from it all. Right. I, I guess I can't imagine even the mood where you were must have shifted very quickly once the, the scale of the attack became became clear. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the scale of the attack became clear uh, gradually over the hours that sort of went by. By early afternoon on Saturday, we had an idea of, of the scale. And of course, it was holiday. Um, it was... Uh, yeah. Shabbat, so, um, you know, soldiers and, and army bases weren't stuffed fully. Um, so, yeah, there was that anxiety and worry amongst, well, us and obviously the rest of the country. Um, so, yeah, it was it was pretty anxious um, Saturday. I gather you're meant to leave on Monday. Uh, do you have any indication? I, I don't, the flights are not, are not flying in and out. Um, have you been able to figure out what you're going to do? Uh, yes. So uh, as of Tuesday, uh, we registered on on a list of Canadians in Israel, mm-hmm. and we've been getting emails from uh, foreign affairs. Um, those were mostly, or well, still are, kind of uh, very um, like form form, sort of form emails, right? Yeah, informative yeah. emails that there will be evacuation flights scheduled for 12th, 13th, and 14th. Nothing concrete for us, but we know that uh, a couple of planes already uh, moved Canadians from Tel Aviv um, today. Um, yeah, we, of course, I called Air Canada earlier and tried to reschedule, but it was really impossible to find any flights because company airlines were canceling their flights uh essentially right away right right when it started uh so right now there is at least a little bit of clarity that we're, we're hoping we will be able to get out um in the next couple of days and we already rebooked our returning flight to to take us back to calgary uh from greece which is where right. uh, the closest, I guess, airport where where Canadian Air Force is flying Canadians out of Israel to. So you're really hoping to get out at this point. You have no interest in You don't want to be staying any longer than you have to. Uh, yeah, under circumstances that my family is in, uh, our son is in Calgary. He is relatively young and very worried. It's It's been very challenging to... Manage our anxiety is needless to say he is uh, over ten time zones away. Um, so yeah, we we want to get out uh, as soon as possible and and have our family reunited. Yeah, it must be but, tough to explain to him as well just what's happening because he's. I mean, at that age, you're probably old enough to to be aware of, of some of what you're seeing and and just how scary it is. 
Yes, it, it definitely has been a challenge, um, especially with social media and videos circulating that, you know, are very disturbing and alarming. And of course, you know, from far away, you don't know what your relatives are and, and what sort of danger they are. Um, so yes, it, it's, uh, I'm sure it's, it, it is difficult for him, but I think we, we've been able to handle that pretty well so far. How about the help from the embassy? I know, I mean, it's difficult, I gather, for any embassy when there's a surge of people who need to get out of somewhere, right? We saw it, at the, you know, when COVID hit, uh, we've seen it in other evacuations. But how how is how is uh, how has Global Affairs Canada been, been for you? I can't say that I'm satisfied, but at the same time, I realize that if I think rationally, they are doing really well all things considered there is at least there are 3500 of us registered um canadians in in israel west bank and gaza um there's probably more realistically there are there are more because registration is voluntary and yes there is an influx of calls and and relatives are calling from all over the world trying to figure out how to to get their loved ones um, to safety so um in all things considered i think they're doing well well constantine thank you so much i wish you and your family and your and your and your son all the best i know this is a really tense time for you and everybody and uh, i just hope you get on one of those planes and, and get back to calgary as soon as possible Thank you, Ben. I I really appreciate you reaching out to me. We just spoke with Calgary's Constantine Diskin, who is still in southern Israel tonight, waiting to find out when he can start the long journey home. My next guest was also in Israel with his wife, daughter, and her boyfriend when violence erupted on Saturday morning. David Wallach is a dual Canadian-Israeli citizen. He decided not to wait for the Canadian government to help get them out, instead finding a way out on a privately organized Dash 8 charter that left Haifa in Israel for Cyprus. And that's where David Wallach is tonight. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. So tell me a bit about your experience. You managed to leave, but you didn't wait for a government flight. You decided um, you decided to leave as soon as you could. I think that's something that uh, I've learned many, many years ago. As you see, I have a lot of gray hair that if you wait for the government, keep waiting. And uh, so uh, I took uh, some initiative with help, with help from friends, and, and we got on one of the charter planes that uh, very uh, influential or, sorry, very successful business person in Toronto has donated to evacuate Canadians and not wait for the government. Right. I mean, because there was certainly a lot of frustration early on. I know it's it's I was speaking to someone earlier and it's it's clearing up a bit, but certainly in the early days there was a sense that that you weren't being heard. Well, we were be their embassy did listen to us, but then they told us it's your problem. Uh right. so that was very clear. So they did uh, respond, but they said it's your problem that you are here, it's your problem to leave and uh, the fact that their Canada Council canceled all their flights, it's not their problem. Um, so we started looking at other avenues. Uh, it was tough in the first two days. It was very tough to find anything that made sense. And we didn't just want to go to the Ben Gurion airport and wait there until, you know, a, a seat becomes clear because we're right. 
we're a family of four here. And uh, so, yeah, so that was frustrating. I did register the family with uh, the um, embassy, and they promised us immediately following the government announcement that they are going to evacuate us. Uh, they did send us an email saying, uh, in the next 24 hours, you'll hear from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, it took over 30, over 32 or 34 hours to get the email. The, the email. Uh, by that time, we were already in Cyprus. Right. You'd already decided to leave. I know you've been there. I mean, you've, you're a dual citizen. You've been back and forth a lot. This is not, uh, you're not unfamiliar with with what it's like to be in Israel when when security questions come into play. But how was this one? Because from an outsider's point of view, sitting where I am, it feels different. It feels like the, the, there's been, this has been a very different kind of attack and that the response and the mood in the country has been very different as well. Uh, you're 100% right. It's completely different, and everybody feels that it's uh, completely different. Everybody knows it's completely different. Uh, this was a savage attack on, on civilians. That was not, you know, a uh, war designed to uh, tackle army to army. And uh, that was designed to kill as many Jews as possible just because they're Jews. If you look at the result of the operation, uh, from their perspective, they didn't conquer any land. Uh, the world is against them and supports Israel. Joe Biden probably made the most aggressive speech in Israel's history by American president. And and look who's suffering now more than anyone else. It's the, the poor people that live in Gaza. Um, Israel is not going to sit quiet. Uh, Israel must retaliate and is retaliating. And and more and more people in Gaza Strip are, are suffering. So I'm trying to figure out what was the biggest achievement that Hamas uh, achieved other than killing Jews, which is in their uh, manifesto mm-hmm. to, to destroy the, the, the country of Israel and to kill as many Jews by jihad. Before you left, you were helping out, right? I, I'm sure for you there is a pull. I know you're happy to be to leave with your family and make sure they're all safe, but there must be a pull for you too. Uh, to help and and to want to help out the country at this point? Um, I have to admit that that was the toughest farewell I ever had. Uh, We go and visit Israel every year or second year. Uh, We have families there, we have friends, and that was the toughest farewell we ever experienced. Um, All of us were in tears. Um, And, you know, when we were there, it was obvious that we have to help. And... and, um, you see those people that fled from the atrocities and the horrible, uh, you know, behavior by those savages with just a cloth on their backs, and you and you think, what can I help those people? They came on over this over social media, over the media came kind of a request to help them with the necessities of life, whether it's food, whether it's coffee, whether it's towels, whether it's diapers. Mm-hmm. So a few calls to my friends. Uh, both sides of the border, uh, Canada and, is, and and the U.S. We raised, uh, we're now getting closer to eleven or $12,000. And we just, uh, the whole family got into our uh, leased or rented SUV, drove to the nearest uh, Safeway, and we brought them two SUV, you know, cover from bottom to top with, all the necessities of life, and and they, within minutes it all went to those families. And you so donated blood. Yeah, 
I gather and as well. Then, and then yesterday it was blood donation because there over forty thousand, or sorry, four thousand people that were injured so right. far. So the um, the blood bank was asking for donations, and uh, we went and donated blood. Well, David, I, I wish you and your family a, a safe rest of your journey home. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hamas's decision to take hostages, to take innocent hostages, and to use them as uh, as pawns uh, in a game of terror uh, is absolutely unconscionable, and all must stand strongly against these uh, horrific acts. That was the Prime Minister, obviously, in Yellowknife today. Justin Trudeau saying Israel has every right to defend itself against Hamas, according to international law. He says every effort needs to be taken to make sure civilians on both sides of the conflict are kept safe now. But when it comes to who's responsible for this, uh, he says there is no doubt. Of course, the violence erupted Saturday morning when Hamas gunmen crossed into southern Israel to target civilians. 1,300 people including three Canadians, have been killed, 3,000, 4,000 more injured. Hamas is also believed to be holding dozens of hostages that were brought back into Gaza. Of course, in response, Israel continues to bombard the Gaza Strip. That's a small strip of land uh, in uh, bordered by Israel, Egypt, and the Mediterranean Sea, home to some 2.1 million people. It's been ruled by Hamas since 2006, who, of course, deny Israel's right to exist and have never made uh, any, any, they've never said anything different. Uh, Israel Israeli military, of course, is preparing for a potential ground assault on Gaza. The Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying yesterday, promising yesterday to crush and destroy Hamas. More than 1,500 Palestinians have already been killed, many more injured. Gaza has been completely cut off from receiving supplies and power, which it receives from Israel. And while experts have condemned the Hamas attacks on Israelis as absolutely abhorrent, they're also warning that the complete siege of Gaza will lead to disastrous shortages of food, water, and electricity for the millions of civilians that are there. There's an Ontario woman trapped in Gaza. She says she's afraid she could die at any moment as Israeli warplanes drop bombs around her in the sealed-off territory. She's pleading for Ottawa's help. Clued uh, Fayed says she left her three sons in Mississauga to visit her sick 85-year-old father in Gaza a week before uh, the bombardment began. She's been hiding in a school with her parents and hundreds of other civilians without food, water, or electricity. I'm very scared. I'm very scared. I really need help. I have to go outside. Please, 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 please help us. Tell the Canadian what we can do. Help us. We are human. There is no difference between a human as Palestinian, Israel, Canadian. We are all human. Of course, we found out, uh, we were speaking in the last half hour, that Canada has begun the, those airlifts from Tel Aviv uh, for citizens trying to get out of there. But the government says they have around 70 Canadians stuck in Gaza who've asked for help, but they have no way of reaching them without a humanitarian corridor that was bombed earlier this week and has not been operating since. We want to find out more about this because there are clearly lots of concerns about civilian deaths here. Uh, Michael Link served as the UN, a UN Special Rapporteur to the Occupied Palestinian Territories, the West Bank and Gaza, for six years, uh, from 2016 until last year. He's now a Professor Emeritus in the Faculty of Law at Western University, and he joins me now. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Maybe uh, so people understand what a special rapporteur does, but uh, it certainly involves, I mean, just your role in the region and how much you would have seen of Gaza during that time. 
Well, it's an irony that you asked me that. As Special Rapporteur, I was an unpaid volunteer with an expertise in the Middle East, and I would make two annual reports to the Human Rights Council in uh, UN Human Rights Council in Geneva and the UN General Assembly in New York. I had lived in in Jerusalem and Bethlehem in the late 1980s doing uh, human rights and refugee work for the United Nations. I've been there on a number of occasions, but I've not been there since 2010. Luckily, while I did not have access, I had access to probably one of the best reported human rights crises in the world. I was a, um, I would receive regular reports from Palestinian human rights organizations, Israeli human rights organizations, international human rights organizations on what the human rights situation was there. So because of that, you know, you know, it was a very effective plan B, if you like, in order to be able to comprehensively comment on the human rights trends and the human rights violations that were ongoing. We're watching something unfold now that if anyone's who's paid attention to that conflict over many decades feels different. I'm not sure if that's the right way to put it, but I, but one gets the sense that, that given the scope, the scale, the brutality of the Hamas attack on Saturday, that something is different now and that what may come next may be something we haven't witnessed before. Are you concerned about what may come next? I'm an eternal optimist, and I think I, I draw that from being a lawyer and particularly being invited in uh, in human rights law. But this, I'm afraid, is a time to be pessimistic. I think we're heading for a very dark place for the foreseeable future, for the next few weeks at least, with respect to Israel and Palestine. Of course, the scale of the brutality of what happened on Saturday and going into Sunday with respect to the hundreds and hundreds of Israeli civilians who were killed or and those who were, were kidnapped has made, I'm sure, Israeli blood boil. But it's also given an opportunity for a fairly far-right Israeli government to begin to develop, I think, probably fairly massive plans for an intense bombardment of Gaza. Gaza, for the last 16 years, has been a humanitarian crisis. Uh, it's been blockaded by Israel in a very comprehensive way. It's meant that the uh, Gazan economy is on its back. The healthcare system is falling apart. They operate with very little power for uh, for heating and lighting. They have real difficulty in reaching access to potable water. But what happened on the weekend has triggered this decision by the Israeli government to com- uh, impose a complete siege on Gaza. No water going in, no electricity going in, no food going in, no medical supplies going in. This is going to turn a humanitarian crisis uh, into humanitarian catastrophe with what I suspect will be the bombing uh, and the assault on Gaza to come. Right. A ground offensive as well, something that we uh, of a scale that we have not seen before. Well, you know, the the Israeli military will confront problems, whichever choice they wind up taking with respect to how to what they're going to do with Gaza. Yes, there will continue to be aerial missiles uh, and drones hitting Gaza. And we've already seen the level of destruction that it's caused. If Israel decides to mount a full scale invasion to decapitate the leadership of, uh, of Hamas, the price they will pay may be quite high in terms of the lives of Israeli soldiers and, of course, the hostages that are there as well, 
let alone the number of Palestinian civilians who will wind up dying in this. We know from prior experience, particularly 2014, when the last major assault on Gaza took place over 50 days, there were 2,300 Palestinians who were killed, over 1,500 of whom were Palestinian civilians. Uh, There was immense destruction that occurred in large parts of uh, the refugee camps as well as the cities uh, in Gaza. This assault, as you indicated, and I, and I agree with you, is has the potential to be something much bigger, much more ferocious. I'm worried, as anybody interested in human rights and humanitarian affairs is worried, of what the aftermath uh, that will be left in Gaza is going to be. One suspects that Hamas would have known exactly what Israel's reaction might be to that sort of a, that sort of attack if it, in fact, was, quote unquote, uh, successful in their eyes. I mean, the scale and, and scope of the attack, I think, caught so many people off guard. They must have known what they were what they would provoke if, if they went ahead with it. And here we are. I mean, in many ways, you feel for Palestinian civilians caught underneath a regime, Hamas, who seems to not care much for them at all. And now in the line of fire in what's expected to be sort of the revenge. It's hard for me to to fathom what Hamas thought it was going to wind up accomplishing by creating such devastation, particularly in these um, southern border towns uh, within Israel through the warrant slaughter of Israeli citizens. I don't know what they thought the reaction w- would wind up being, other than if they thought for somehow they were they were going to be safe, or it would trigger either a general Palestinian uprising or a wider regional conflict. I don't know what was in their minds, but what is to come uh, could only be if you, thought, you know the Israeli ambition to want to try to end Hamas as a ruling force there. But just like if you go into a china shop and you break something, it's yours. If Israel winds up uh, launching a full-scale invasion to to wind up toppling Hamas, then it owns Gaza. It withdrew from Gaza in 2005 and then encircled it. If it goes back and takes it over, it's going to be its responsibility to wind up running. And you will have 2.3 million Palestinians who have no use and will resist against a a full-scale Israeli occupation. I'm sure that the Palestinian Authority will not want to take over Gaza on the uh, on the backs of Israeli bayonets going in there. So, you know, I'm not. I, I I don't know what Hamas was thinking with regards to what it thought was going to be its end game. Surely, the Israelis are trying to ponder what their own end game is going to be with a full scale invasion of Gaza. It strikes me, Michael. The other thing here too is that. Uh, within Gaza now, a vast majority of that population are under 18, meaning the only rule they've ever known is Hamas. This is a changed Gaza even from 2014. It is. You know, you're, you're right. Somewhere between 47 to 50 percent of the population is 18 years old and uh, and younger. All they've ever known is this particular siege. Virtually none of them have ever left Gaza. And keep in mind, you know, Gaza is in my mind, a unique phenomenon in the world today. Where else can you find a large population, in this case, 2.3 million people, who are penned in and have no freedom of movement? Um, I cannot think of any situation, even under some of the most oppressive regimes in the world, where you have what former Prime Minister of Great Britain, David Cameron, called an open-air prison. 
it's unique in, in the annals of of, uh, of the modern world, and I think it's a blight on the modern international conscience that this winds up existing and has existed for almost two decades. When one looks at ways of protecting civilians, I mean, I, I know from we obviously speak to to people on the Israeli side, and and you know they're. they're their priority is not to try, you know, civilians are in the way. They try, obviously, not to target Palestinian civilians in Gaza and leaflets are handed out and so on. And, and of course, they're being told to leave. I guess the only answer now is humanitarian corridors. But the Egyptians who own the other side of who have the other side of this, the only other exit, to put it that way, uh, mm-hmm. are also don't seem too keen on opening it up to allow civilians to find refuge at this point. There is no place to go when Benjamin Netanyahu tweeted the other day telling Gaza residents leave that was a very sad joke there's no place to leave to other than within the Gaza Strip right now we have an estimated 15 percent of the population of of Gaza are internally displaced people some of those may have relatives elsewhere in the Gaza Strip to be able to look after them but the vast majority of them approaching 200,000 are gathering in United Nations schools or health clinics or other buildings in order to try to be protected. The UN obviously has given its coordinates for where these schools and buildings are to warn off uh, Israeli missiles. But those missiles, even though they may be called smart missiles, aren't always smart. And in prior wars in Gaza, uh, hundreds of Palestinians have died who sheltered uh, in those schools. So those aren't necessarily safe places for them either. And as the bombardment will continue in its uh, ferocity uh, and as a wider range of targets are chosen, we're going to see, besides more deaths, more people internally displaced and on the move to try to find shelter anywhere in the Gaza Strip. I guess in this sense, listening to Benjamin Netanyahu this evening, if if there is to be what we I could only call retribution for this for this attack by Hamas. Uh, it seems that there is no way that it's not going to involve civilians being caught, perhaps on both sides in this case, uh, but certainly in Gaza being caught in the middle. Yes, um, and let's let's turn our attention a little bit to uh, to international law. International law forbids collective punishment. So for the for the period of time since 2006 or 2007, when Gaza has been the subject of this comprehensive land, sea, and air blockade, that has amounted to collective punishment under international law, which is strictly forbidden with no exceptions. What's happened um, in the last four days with this entire siege with respect to no water, no electricity, no food, no medical supplies being able to enter This is also, if you like, a ramped up violation of international law. Starvation is forbidden to be able to be used by a military force with respect to a captive civilian population. It is forbidden to um, use the necessities of life in order to be able to make a civilian population suffer and wind up surrendering, let alone the use of targets uh, that may not be able to adequately distinguish between militants and civilians. I've sometimes been faced with the argument, so what is Israel to do? You have a densely populated uh, strip with civilians and militants mixed in there together. What it might lead an adult in the room to say, well, there is no military solution to this, and what we need to do is figure out a viable political path to settle 
once and for all the Palestinian uh, question and the right of Palestinians to self-determination. And that includes the Palestinians not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank and also in East Jerusalem as well. That hasn't happened. There's been no peace process initiative since John Kerry in 2014. There's been no face-to-face negotiations between leaders of Israel and Palestine since the failed Camp David talks 23 years ago. The West is by and large given up and given in to Israel when Israel says it does not want to see a Palestinian state. That's been the very consistent refrain from all recent Israeli leaders. Benjamin Netanyahu, Naftali Bennett, Yar Lapid have all said that there will be no Palestinian state, or certainly not a Palestinian state that meets any modern definition in political science of what a state really is. Um, So Palestinians are left with no political horizon, no hope from the despair and what is an often brutal occupation. If they laugh at me as special rapporteur, Mm -hmm. when I talk about the importance of human rights and international law, and they say, show me where that winds up working in our case, I don't have a lot of great answers for them. If it's nowhere justifiable for what Hamas did, at least there is an explanation for why it has happened. Um, You can oppose it, and we should oppose it, but it, it comes from a very deep context of no political future for the Palestinians. Well, Michael Link, uh, I appreciate your your insight on this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate this very much. Imagine just for a minute if people you loved, if people that you loved were slaughtered, slaughtered, targeted, slaughtered, defenseless, targeted, slaughtered for any reason, and people came out and celebrated that. What would you think? What would you think about people celebrating that? That's sort of what we saw. That's what we saw in this country uh, this week. Now, I spent a lot of time obviously covering and understanding the situation in the Middle East, the situation uh, in Israel and in the occupied territories uh, and in the surrounding region. It is a incredibly complex, long-seated one. People have opinions on it, obviously deeply held, very emotional opinions about it. But to me, it boiled down to that one very simple fact. When people commit atrocities, you condemn them. You condemn atrocities. That's what you do. When anybody slaughters innocents, you can condemn it. You can condemn it. We can go to the what about, what about, what aboutisms later. But at the time, you condemn it. And I just feel like in this country, we've spent, there's been a lot of condemnation, thankfully. But the idea that you would go out and celebrate the slaughter of innocents, the slaughter of innocents under any circumstances, to me is abhorrent absolutely abhorrent. So here we're coming up on Friday, and Friday there's been a call for a day of rage uh, by a former leader of Hamas called Khaled Michel. And uh, there are concerns that Friday will bring demonstrations. Again, I don't want to lump everyone in here. I don't think just because people show their support for the Palestinian cause that they're necessarily cheering the slaughter of innocents, but you better be careful when you're doing that. I believe in free speech. Obviously, I believe in your right to protest and your right to say what you think. But at the same time, do not be cheering the slaughter of innocents. 
So there's concern that this may uh, devolve tomorrow into something more ugly. Uh, obviously, the RCMP today said it was aware of threats on social media directed at Canada's Jewish communities, calling on the public to be on high alert, to be vigilant right now. Uh, Toronto's police chief says patrols are being expanded. Officers will be more visible as the conflict and the emotions run high on both sides of the equation for those in the middle as well. Uh, Myron Demkew says the forces received no specific credible threats after discussing with Jewish and Palestinian community members, police officers have been directed to expand patrols around cultural centers, synagogues, mosques, schools, and other places of worship. Our communities have been very, very clear uh, that they are concerned for their feelings of safety and their sense of safety, um, and we want to be present in ensuring our communities not only are safe, but we need them to feel safe. We'd like them to feel comfortable to go and express themselves and go to synagogue and go to mosque and go to businesses. Police in Ottawa, Winnipeg, Vancouver, and elsewhere are also stepping up patrols. Uh, and this applies to the other side as well. People talking about slaughtering Palestinians in revenge for this. You know, people talking about the civilians. I mean, again, you know, the, the only answer here is to condemn the violence, right? But certainly what happened on Saturday was indiscriminate, an indiscriminate terrorist attack. Hamas, of course, is listed as a terrorist group in this country. Um, that's what it was. I mean, this was ISIS. If you covered, I covered ISIS for years. This was an ISIS-styled attack. Indiscriminate slaughter of people simply because they were there. Not to advance any political purposes other than to simply install fear. And that's what's happened. That's why you're seeing reaction like we've been seeing uh, this week from uh, Jewish communities right around the world. You know, th this, was, this was on a different scale. We, again, we can talk about the plight of the Palestinians, Gaza, the West Bank, uh, two-state solution. There's all sorts of different politics to be talked about here. But if you can't start by saying and by condemning the death of innocents, uh, whether they be whether it be in the past or whether it be on Saturday morning and into Sunday in southern Israel, then then where do you begin with this one? Where do you begin? Um, again, uh, the attack by Hamas uh, on Saturday as they crossed into southern Israel has left some 1,300 people dead, including three Canadians, thousands wounded. Uh, there are hostages, apparently, that are in Gaza at this point as well, which is, is again, something that uh, complicates the situation. Here's the Prime Minister today. There is no question that Hamas is a terrorist organization that has uh, brutally murdered uh, innocent civilians, uh, that has uh, chosen to invade Israel, uh, that has chosen to cause just horrific devastation, and on top of that, has taken hostages. Avi Benlolo is the founding chairman and CEO of the Abraham Global Peace Initiative. He joins me from Toronto. Avi, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben, for having me. Tell me a bit about your, your group and the work they do, because it is about uh, extending a hand and understanding, too, and it feels like this is a time where, where that's needed. Well, we're a complex group, uh, global in nature, a Canadian NGO that uh, combats anti-Semitism, uh, def defends freedom and democracy uh, globally and promotes human rights. We also focus in on um, on the Holocaust and the lessons of the Holocaust and what it is as humanity we can learn from it. Tell me a bit about what's happening this week, because I understand there's been a call for mobilization from Hamas. Uh, there is some concerns. We're seeing reports of increased security. Uh, I was in Paris after the uh, attack on the kosher grocery store there, and I remember seeing soldiers at a synagogue. And that, I have to tell you, as a Canadian, was something jarring to see. Well, firstly, uh, your this is timely because as we speak, there was just a short while ago developing issue here in Toronto at a mm -hmm. Hebrew school 
with a group of what appear to be Muslim students uh, who congregated and started harassing the students. Uh, so that story is now developing, and the um, the notion is that it ties into what's supposed to happen tomorrow, which is that the the Jewish community all over the world actually has been threatened uh, by Hamas and actually by Iran as well, that have both called for uh, really almost like a day of rage against uh, the Jewish world and the Jewish uh, community. I imagine that there's been a lot of outreach with authorities to try to figure out how to how to handle this. I mean, we know in Canada there is that, you know, there is the freedom of, of, of assembly and the freedom of speech to some extent. But at the same time, it's a very fine line. And we we saw it. We've seen it already. Well, yes. So so number one is, of course, uh, we have an excellent relationship with the police and uh, law enforcement services. They are on board with the Jewish community. They completely understand uh, what's at stake and what's involved. And and they are very responsive uh, to the needs of uh, Jewish institutions uh, that need a heightened sense of security. In fact, where I am, uh, in the heart of a Jewish community, there is an actual police mobile unit that's made itself visible. So that visibility is very important within the Jewish community because of the threats. And we know that from the last time uh, in 2021, when there was a, a war uh, between Israel and Hamas, um, that uh, there were quite a number of assaults uh, emanating from the Palestinian community against the Jewish community. Uh, including, you know, caravans and intimidation of businesses and so forth. So, um, you know, we're expecting that surge as well uh, to happen. And it's happening uh, not only here in in Canada, but unfortunately around the world. Why it is that they're taking their uh, frustration and their anger at a local Jewish community uh, when obviously we're not uh, directly involved in the conflict, uh, that's interesting and that's anti-Semitism in general. So, you know, uh, that is something that I think should be taken uh, note of. And it's very disappointing that, of course, you know, there's a large Muslim community uh, in Canada uh, but we're all Canadian citizens. We're, we should all be friendly to one another. We adhere to the values of coexistence and pluralism, and we leave our baggage behind. And so, um, you know, what we're seeing here uh, in Toronto and elsewhere, the demonstrations on the streets, uh, and, you know, over years, over a period of, of, of I would say, years, um, and even more recently, is a celebration of the Hamas uh, going into Israel murdering uh, well over 1,300 people in their beds, 260 people um, who were at a rave, were at a dance party, mm-hmm. young people in their 20s, um, that these these demonstrators, these Palestinian demonstrators are celebrating this instead of denouncing this. And as Canadians, I think this should be of concern to all of us. And so we are pressing on authorities. I mean, we think that this crosses the red line. We're pressing on authorities, be it government officials uh, and police, uh, that they need to curb these demonstrations because uh, now they've become, you know, plainly hateful. There's one thing where, you know, of course, free speech, but this this crosses the line. In your eyes, for people outside who may not you know, what, what strikes me sometimes when you look at modern Canada is so many people from different parts of the world may have come here with with not much in the way of background when it comes to this very long conflict. Um, they may hear what they hear. They don't really know. Maybe they feel some sympathy for the Palestinians. Uh, and then they turn up with a flag or they turn up at something like what happened uh, we've seen in Canada over the past little while. 
when when the Jewish community sees that, what what are you seeing? What would you tell them? Because I I, it, yeah, I think people are struggling now. We've seen it in public life. People sort of stepping in it because they're trying to sort of sound equivocal and that it comes across as sounding anything but. But this seems to have been a very difficult time for a lot of, I, I think, quote unquote, well-intentioned people uh, to navigate this one. Right. So, Ben, I think I think your question is actually excellent because I agree with you completely. Most Canadians actually don't know. It's a fairly complex issue, but I can distill it into just several facts. Number one is the entity Hamas, which is a really a Palestinian radical Islamic group, which runs the Gaza uh, Strip, um, is a repressive uh, group that, uh, you know, for us Canadians, nobody would want to live amongst them. Uh, they are anti-gay rights. They are anti-women. Uh, they are anti-minority. They are anti-everything that you and I and, and the public would hold dear. Uh, and this is this is the, the reality. And so their main stated objective, unfortunately, is to eradicate the state of Israel and to occupy it as a Palestinian state. That's what they want to do. The Jewish people, it has to be understood for anyone who reads the Bible and knows history, uh, the Jewish people are indigenous to the land of Israel. Our being is there. Our blood is there. Our, our you know, if you want to go scientific here, you know, evidence on the ground of Jewish existence well over 3,000 years ago is there. And so no one can dispute, no one in their right mind can dispute that that this is the place of the Jewish people. Historically, and contemporarily, and we've always been there. The problem is that you have these Palestinian groups who are trying to dislodge us uh, through violence and through anti-Semitism. And I think that that's basic, the basic facts that the Canadian um, society need to understand. It feels like it feels like after many, many years of people understanding their history and the complexities of it, that we somehow have lost that. And we're seeing the reflections of it when these sorts of things happen, the idea that someone would would run out to cheer the murder of innocents. I mean, I don't think any Canadian would cheer the death of civilians in Gaza either, but they're certainly not going to cheer the death of, of innocent civilians in Israel. And yet somehow it feels like we've lost the thread on the history here and why this matters. And I wonder, you've spent a career devoting yourself to making sure people understand. And I wonder where, what you think of that. Well, look, as a Holocaust uh, expert and someone who's now taken uh, about 11 excursions groups to Auschwitz to educate them about what transpired, you know, uh, the, the critical thing is this human compl complacency and silence. But, but more than that is there is an anti-Semitic thread that runs through. And what is most disappointing, what is, I have to be honest with you, what is most disappointing to us is when you look at the war that happened in Ukraine, Everybody came on board denouncing that war, as they should. I went over and I helped, you know, Ukrainian refugees twice. I raised a lot of money uh, to help them, uh, despite what happened to the Jews at Babiar and, and you know, the Holocaust. Over one and a half million Jews were killed in Ukraine. So we did that despite. But he, we don't feel the same thing as a Jewish community here. In fact, what we're seeing is the justification of what Hamas did. Uh, we're seeing that at unions. We're seeing that by the shallow press releases that are released by universities um, and and by uh, even school boards, um, sympathetic as well to the other side, which is shocking. 
And so, and so, um, you know, we're very, very disappointed in some of these very, I, I have to say, and I, you know, I hate labeling, but, but the best way to, to make it understood is, is this, this very, you know, radical leftish, um, group that we've seen promoting BDS and mm. and the false notions that Israel is an apartheid state and that the false notions that Jews are colonizers, all of those things. These groups are extraordinarily anti-Semitic and they're justifying the attacks. In fact, they're blaming it on Israel for bringing it on and and you know the slaughter of all of these people is blamed on Israel. And so it's a reminder of the past and it's a forgetting that you know. They're gonna they can't they're coming in after us, but they're not gonna stop there. They're gonna come after you too. And we know this from the Holocaust because it wasn't just Jews who were murdered. Millions of others were murdered in the same way too. Yeah, I was at Auschwitz for the 70th anniversary. It is, a, and I've been there a few times. I mean, it is a place that that you cannot ever forget if you've ever set foot in. What do you tell then Canadians? Because I know they're going to see a lot of images in the near future. I think of uh, Gazans, civilians, kids. You know, I mean, when you're far away, uh, is civilians are civilians, right? We sort of feel, and I think we saw that in Ukraine as well. We sort of feel this natural affinity for the for the deaths of, of women and kids and the elderly, as we've seen, uh, and as we saw in Israel or on Saturday. Uh, what do you tell Canadians then when they see these images and are bombarded with messages saying, you know, this too, these are equivalents? Yeah, and that's a, that's a very good question because here's what's going to happen. So today there's sympathy for Israel, uh, global sympathy because of what's happened and because of the pictures that what we're seeing. Problem is that the Hamas terrorists are hiding in between the civilian population. But we know that ultimately civilians are going to die and get hurt, and those images will flood our television. And in turn, the Palestinians and the Palestinian uh, supporters will use those images for propaganda purposes, and in turn, that will sway uh, the public. So I would just appeal to the public to say, look, look at it in a critical lens, understand the situation that Israel is doing everything it can to minimize um, you know, the casualties and remember who these people are, not the civilians. I'm talking about Hamas. Remember who they are and what you would do if you had neighbors like this who were launching over 5000 rockets at you um, and who went into your community and slaughtered your families. What would you do? For sure, you would do the same. So, um, you know, I just I would appeal to the to, to the Canadian um, population to understand it and look at those images and understand the reality of the situation with a critical mind. Avi, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Ben. You know what that sounds sound means? Someone gets to ring the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Well, yesterday, if you've been watching, it was Birkenstock. That's right, the sandal company from hippie to hip in just a matter of decades. And uh, you won't mind, find many people wearing them on Wall Street, at least not when I've been there. But the German shoemaker, sandal maker, was front and center as they uh, rang the opening bell. Um, that was Oliver Reichardt, the CEO, doing that. The 250-year-old company's initial public offering, or IPO, was yesterday. And that's right, the footwear so long synonymous with sort of counterculture 
anti-fashion trips to Germany, maybe, um, is now on the NYSE. It hasn't been the most comfortable fit for investors just yet. The IPO priced the stock at $46 a share, but it fell again today to $37.55, reflecting some doubts about just how much more room there is to grow. But uh, considering it traces its roots back to an 18th century cobbler and released its first sandal in 1963, it has come a mighty long way. Honestly, if you told me in the 70s when I used to have friends and, you know, there was always the one dad who had the tall socks on and the Birkenstocks that we used to make a lot of fun of. If you could have told me then that it would have come from that to what it is now, I would have been shocked. But you never know these days, right? So found it found its first fans, of course, amongst hippie types, drawing to the shoes, sort of flexible and sturdy and practical, all those good things. Um but it's it's you know it's been since the '90s. I guess it was Kate Moss who was the first the the model was the first one to kind of put them out there as something other than. And uh, over the last few decades, I mean, it's won huge followings. You see them absolutely everywhere now. And of course, the pandemic helped out as well because they are incredibly comfortable. I don't actually own a pair, but many people do. Uh, so they've had collaborations with fashion designers and sightings on celebrities and all the things that you get these days. Um, and then it appeared. Uh, Birkenstocks appeared in the Barbie movie uh, on her journey of liberation. Uh, she was seen sporting the classic two-strap sandals in pastel pink. So uh, that was a huge boon for it. Um, last year, the company sold some 30 million pairs of sandals. Uh, can you imagine? Uh, just an, an incredible amount. So is there much room to grow? Why now for an IPO? And what does it say when a company like Birkenstock, uh, sort of a family business, with their, I think there were new investors that came in a little while ago, um, but what does it say when a company like that goes public? Thomae Sardari is a professor of marketing at New York University's Stern School of Business and director of the Fashion and Luxury MBA there as well. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Ben. This was an interesting one because I think those of us who grew up in the 70s have always have never been able to shake the image of the Birkenstock as somehow being sort of counterculture, anti-fashion. And yet there it is making its debut on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, How is it doing? It doesn't look like a very comfy fit so far for investors. That's right. Uh, the, the stock price has slipped again today. However, it is already i mean it's 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 at 7.5 billion so <laughs> yes right i mean from 9 down to 7.5 that's not a bad deal but also just to uh not to defend them but we also need to look at the market right. looking at the entirety of it right it's not how one individual company fares the day after their ipo but what other forces um shape how the analysts see the company in right. a particular timing point point in time I guess a lot of IPOs have been struggling a little bit over the past little while as well. Why now? Yes. Why now for Birkenstock? Because it's been this sort of company that, like like so many others, if you think of sort of Converse and Dr. Martens, these brands that sort of never change much, but just kind of come and go. They, you know, Their popularity sort of comes and goes and comes and goes. Uh, why did Birkenstock decide this was the right time for an IPO? Uh, it all has to do with the, the corporate structure and the corporate structure, which is a family owned business for three, three centuries in essence, uh, and who decided to get an outside to get an in, outside investor uh, just three and a half years ago, four years ago, and that is El Caterton. Mm -hmm. Now, why they decided to do that can be several things. I haven't spoken to the family, but it can be that uh, as simple as that the next generation don't want to be solely responsible for how the company is doing. 
and also being uh, unable to grow it on their own. So you need an infusion of cash. And often that comes as a first phase through private investors. It's been interesting to see its growth, too, because its its growth in the last three years since they brought in the other investor has been pretty remarkable. And I guess part of that has to do with kind of comfort and the pandemic, and it's sort of the, a perfect a perfect good storm for Birkenstock. But it seems to me that it's become more and more ubiquitous over the past decade or so. They've become very popular shoes instead of sort of this niche market that they always were. Yes, and, and that has a lot to do with uh, popular culture and culture in general. I think uh, there is a little bit of a coincidence there, right? The fact that uh, celebrities, the creative class, people who are the cultural pioneers are seen and photographed wearing Birkenstocks for the last 10 or 15 years. And so uh, if that whets the appetite of the public, then uh, the move to bring in outside investors and actually think how to invigorate their retail presence was the right thing to do. Yeah. What are some of the pitfalls, potential pitfalls of an IPO for a company like Birkenstock? Uh, it is the fact that uh, they they have to answer now to their investors. They have to uh, meet certain goals every uh, you know quarter of the year, which means a lot of pressure internally to uh, achieve these results. And that could mean at some point cutting corners. I hope that doesn't happen, but it has happened to many many other companies, uh, including you know moving manufacturing away from the original place of manufacturing all of which in the end dilutes the original uh, brand and brand equity. Yes, I suppose part of Birkenstock's appeal is that they've been so consistent for so many years. I mean, this, the, 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 the Birkenstock Arizona sandal that you buy today is very similar to the ones that your, you know, my parents would have or other, others would have bought you know, 50 years ago. They're, they're kind of the same shoe. Yes, and that is actually one of the secret formulas in the premium and luxury markets. If you think about luxury brands that you like, that you have been buying uh, uh, clothing or shoes from, that is how they update their products. They do very, very minor tweaks because they want to achieve this uh, timelessness, this iconic timelessness that comes from a product that doesn't need to change and that is always fashionable no matter what else is happening around us in terms of style. It's interesting to, that we use the word fashionable and Birkenstocks in the same phrase, but they are, in <laughs> fact, fashionable. I mean, I've seen I see lots of people wear them, uh, particularly the clog ones have become incredibly popular. It's just funny to see see shoes that were once mocked become so, so fashionable. But there you have it. And I guess Birkenstocks is trying to find a way to capitalize on its moment. I think that's uh, that's exactly it, uh, and and uh, this this will be one of the companies that I follow with with great interest, precisely to see how the new how their leadership is is going to face the pressure that any publicly traded company faces in the market. When you look at some of the, is there any chance here of saturation as well? I mean, in, in some senses, again, it, it, the companies sort of maintain this, a, cert, a certain reputation for so many years. If all of a sudden you start to, and I'm starting to see a lot more imitations, obviously things that look just like the Birkenstock. I'm sure they're not as comfortable, clearly, but they look a lot like them. There is always that chance that they sort of fall into the same trap that Crocs fell into a while back. Although I gather they they got themselves out of that. But just where there are so many imitators that the that the original brand, especially now with things being more expensive the original brand starts to get diluted a bit yes that is true although there is always the question uh, about imitators or fakes uh, in the sense that they do increase the 
uh, equity of the original brand, which is a, another uh, of these ironic things that happen in the luxury market. And think about Gucci, think about Fendi, think about Louis Vuitton and all the fakes that exist in the marketplace. So that's not exactly it as my fear. My fear yeah. is, as I said, is that they may inundate the market with too much product. And I would prefer to see them grow by establishing interesting retail uh, flagship stores in different parts of the world and creating exciting immersive experiences as they have done with the retail uh, boutiques that they have uh, already uh, established. There seems to be room for growth too, because I gather a lot of their sales, I mean, not all, but a predominant number of uh, section of their sales go is, is sell, they sell to, to women. And also the, it's fairly limited to sort of North America and Europe, that there is kind of a big market out there for them if they can find a way to capitalize on some of this free publicity they're getting, such as in the Barbie movie and so on. Exactly. And uh, the Barbie movie was a very smart move to really get the brand in everyone's, you know, top of mind and, and uh, consumer's perception. Uh, but I think they have done it really well because they have been very selective in what types of collaborations they launched with whom uh, often these have been very exclusive fashion brands barbie is not a fashion brand is an icon is a popular icon uh, but uh, i agree with you this can be really exciting and of course they haven't been in all geographies so that already is uh, opportunity for growth what are some of the headwinds that the, I mean, the industry, obviously you teach an MBA uh, or you're the director of the MBA program in fashion and luxury. We've seen some headwinds over the last couple of years when it comes to luxury brands that have been so successful now for so much of this century. Uh, I guess Birkenstock also, although not often thought of as sort of, you know, like a Ferragamo or something, but Birkenstock can get caught up in that as well. Yes, uh, it has the essence of a luxury brand, as I said, because they controlled up to now their manufacturing in a very, very um, tight way, exactly as luxury brands do. Um, the headwinds have to do with what the global markets are doing in general. Here we are in the middle of two wars, right? Mm -hmm. um, supply chain issues, uh, China with uh, problems in their real estate sector and and. Uh, kind of a contraction of their economy right now. Although everyone says that and, and the market is still <laughs> filled with Chinese buying luxury brands in, in the US. So I don't know what is going on there. So um, it has happened before, however, I don't think that just one quarter of, um, uh, you know, uh, tepid results is enough to say that the luxury market is now going down market uh, and, and we just need to give it some time. Luxury is a long term game. And so people need to be a little bit more patient with how these companies will fare. Yeah, I suspect there is a segment of the of the Chinese consumer luxury brand consumer that is pretty resistant, pretty resilient to any sort of downturn in the economy. It's just a question of uh, having that much to spend. Um, do you own Birkenstocks? <laughs> I do. I do. do. I do. Or <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they certainly are a lot more. They're a lot more alluring than they. I mean, they're a lot funkier than they used to be. To, to use that word. <laughs> That's true. I do have the Arizona um, uh, and uh, in a very, very exciting gold uh, right. color. <laughs> so it is a neutral, it is comfortable, it is durable, it is, it is a good, reliable friend. And so why not? It's remarkable to see uh, brands that were always known just for their comfort become sort of luxury and coveted. I mean, I think that's what the thing about the Birkenstock story that I find the most interesting. It's sort of the epitome of comfort as luxury. 
Yes, uh, but then again, uh, comfort is part of luxury. Mm -hmm. Timelessness is part of luxury. The sort of uh, product innovation that is very um, subtle, right? Because they have been innovating in terms of materials and how they put them together. Uh, I think they're imperceptible, but they do uh, stick in the consumer's uh, perception of how the brand uh, is and whether it is desirable or not. The eternal question, socks, do you wear them with socks? Oh, absolutely not. I'm not German. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben.